0: I'm Sarah Linquist from Fuse. We're an early stage venture firm based right here in the Pacific Northwest. And just like the founders in our portfolio, we are just getting started. We believe that founders deserve more, more urgency, more community, more expertise, more reliability, more of everything. And we aim to deliver. This operational excellence episode features Fuse LP Gavin Hewitt. Gavin has been a sales leader at multiple companies, including Bluecore, Loop Commerce, Yonder, and more. And he is currently the VP of Sales at Attentive. Gavin has extensive experience selling a diversified set of products and services and building, managing, and motivating teams. During this session, Gavin chats with Fuse's Brendan Wales and shares some key insights around his best practices. Let's get started. I really appreciate everyone making the time. Excited for folks to hear from Gavin, to have a nice conversation. By way of background, Gavin is one of our amazing limited partners, and he's somebody that takes a lot of pride and gets a lot of excitement by working with early stage technology companies, both the founders and the sales leaders within those groups. And he's already been helpful to some of the folks on the call. He comes from an entrepreneurial background. He was an early employee at a business called BlueCore, which ended up being a, a multi-billion dollar company. And in the last four years, he's been leading sales at a business called Attentive Mobile, which is in the customer engagement space. And it's very much a leader in the category doing the hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars. And he's been a big part of the reason that's been the case. And. The big thing that is the reason why I wanted him to, to chat with you guys is he just brings a great perspective on scaling go-to-market and a great sense of urgency, given the exposure to really early stage companies and now companies that are IPO in nature. So thank you again, Gavin, for making the time for us. Yeah, excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to just go in hot right off the beginning, Gavin, because a lot of our companies, they're small businesses at this point, maybe doing you know a couple million dollars of revenue to less than that. And I think the problem that all of them are having is they're trying to get those initial customers and they're a little afraid to ask for the big dollars. And this is something we talked a lot about in our prep call, which is just the importance of driving up that ACV. I'd love to hear, just hear your perspective and some anecdotes around how to think about the value that a software company is providing. And the typical reaction that one would get by going in and even doubling a price from where you even started in the market, because a lot of these folks, it's sort of low
1: teens ACV at this point. Yeah. Uh, So I think that'd be a good way to start. I think in the early days, it's the best opportunity to basically punch above your weight class, right? See what it is that you can get away with. It can be scary. I'll use BlueCore as the example. I remember joining a founding team of three technical folks. I was the first kind of sales go-to-market person brought in. I remember they had a slide that was the free version and the 299 version and the call us version. And when I asked them what call us was, it was like, oh, well, basically it's going to be like 350, right? And I was like, what are you talking about? This is, this technology is so cool, right? They had this amazing MVP. They were trying to get their first customers on it. They were using the live demo was like out of this world. And I just said, like, let me try to go pitch this to some large enterprises and see, see what the feedback is. And it was amazing. Our first experience was we got a meeting with Nike, went down to the campus in Beaverton and did a pitch. You could just see their jaws drop, right? They were used to like large enterprise software that was clunky and didn't do anything. And we were differentiated in this this little thing that we were pitching. And they got to the point where they asked for like, how much is this? And I think we didn't really know what to say. We had an idea, but we were like $10,000 a month. And they were like, Oh, awesome. Yeah. Like let's get the paperwork started. And we went out of the meeting. If somebody had a video camera, like looking out the window that day, they would have seen the CEO founder and myself going like out to our rental car, trying to keep it cool. And then like the car bouncing. Cause we were jumping around like, Holy shit, we just got 120 K from Nike. And they ended up being our first customer. And when you start building on top of you know, figure ACV, with like Nike, it it makes all the other conversations that much easier. And it also gives you the confidence to go in and say, it's going to cost you a half million dollars a year or whatever it may be. So I think, yeah, I think that notion of taking some at-bats, don't try to define your ICP, let them sort of come to you in a way, go and get the meetings, but don't sell yourself short, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, for a lot of the companies, because they're coming out of that period of, hey, do I have or, or am I close to product market fit? And so I think there's almost this imposter syndrome that's going on, which is like, I don't know if we're good enough to charge, nor are we ready to have a Nike. And obviously, when you pitch BlueCore, I'm sure there weren't features that you promised that or things you had to go build in order oh, to support yeah. that. How did you think about that
1: in relation to what you'd you'd be able to pull off in time? Yeah, I mean, you have to get comfortable selling over your skis. And I think that's hard, especially for some founders, certainly technical founders to be comfortable with. But specifically, again, I mean, I remember we pitched this idea of a price drop trigger. So the idea that you go to Nike.com, you look at a pair of Jordans and six months later, the price drops on that item. And our ability to have captured that behavior and then trigger a message saying the price has dropped on an item that you were interested in. That didn't exist. And so that was our second phone call, which was to our CTO saying, we got to build this immediately. So we we launched with other things, but people pulled some all-nighters and we were able to pull it off. And that ended up being a huge differentiator for us was that particular piece of the product because people could do things like cart abandon and browse abandon, right? But we were just doing these really nuanced use cases. Yeah. Having use case selling first and foremost, but then coming up with those use cases that Differentiate you, even if you're still trying to figure out how those are going to ultimately operate. You have to know that you can build it. Like the the ability yeah. is there to build it, and then making sure that you execute against that because those become your best customers.
0: Yeah, right. And one thing I we've been seeing a lot in our portfolio companies is the more you charge, the more serious they take you. Absolutely. And it's just fascinating because I was gonna juxtapose that with also the cost to support these customers, which is something we talked about last week, which is that it's the cost can almost be higher for the smaller ACV folks. And so if you were to the, the trade-off, it tends to be the benefits are kind of on both fronts, which is faster onboarding, higher
1: retention, less support. Yeah. I mean, the support at the end of the day is gonna be the same for a long period of time in most cases, right? So if you're if you're closing a SMB client at $5,000 a year versus an enterprise client at $500,000, ultimately your service is probably going to be pretty similar and, and the cost to service that's going to be pretty high. And so it's a lot better to bring in the big dollars to help offset that and really bankroll what it is that you're trying to do. At Blue Core, we chose to go up market and stay up market. That worked really well for us. In fact, their business has continued to grow on the back of just expanding within large enterprises. I would say one of the things that Attentive did really elegantly is go up and down market in the same motion, which is rare. You have to make sure that you are going to scale fast enough to be able to service both ends of that market. Because a lot of times you probably haven't built the product or the enablement to go down market in a meaningful way or the self-service tooling or whatever it may be to support that. And so you're going to have to throw people at the problem and the way you throw people at the problem is either through fundraising and having the capital, but also getting those big clients that are going to pay you big dollars to help support, yeah. and support that. So some
0: of the people on this phone call are going to be thinking, yeah, I'd love to sell into to Nike, but I don't have the talent to be able to do that or to close those deals. How do you think about bridging that gap with Just the talent to go up market or or to be selling bigger acv deals because maybe those weren't the people initially maybe it's just a mindset which is here's the framework go for it i'm sure you have junior people at attentive that close big deals all the time how do you think about
1: that it's amazing how the dna of a company can change when you close those first big deals it gives everybody in the organization that confidence to go after those larger deals and those bigger companies I would say, especially if you're near you know, the five million ARR, there's probably you have a head of sales or some kind of pseudo sales leader. I would imagine you've scaled some type of small sales team. Ideally, you've done type, hopefully, an SDR team or something that's really driving top of funnel in a meaningful way. The mistake I see more often than giving you the the answer is people going and being like, "Well, oh, if we're gonna charge big dollars, we need to bring in a Salesforce rep." It doesn't work by and large. Maybe there's a few unicorns in there that, that are going to do something meaningful, but... And by that, you mean like a traditional enterprise software sales rep. That's right. not think yeah I mean, I think getting somebody who's either done early stage before, yeah. somebody who was almost ahead of sales or maybe was ahead of sales yeah. and they brought in a VP, they have a little bit of a, a positive chip on their shoulder, right? They want mm-hmm. to, to go and prove something and they're just going to run to the end of the earth to do that. I think bringing in people who are hungry and also understand sales, enterprise sales in some way, shape, or form, and having them go and run a process and a methodology against large customers or large prospects is going to yield results. And ultimately, they're going to be able to scale a team that does those things as well. They're going to hire the right people. They're going to onboard them properly. And ultimately, it's the DNA of the sales org that you're creating. And you're going to create it through those types of people. For the founders on this call better get good at sales. And I don't mean necessarily the process, but being really comfortable just showing up and being a part of that process. The companies that I've seen succeed, whether I was a part of them or not, are the ones where the CEOs were able to lean into selling more than the ones who could not. Because you're the best voice. It's amazing. When somebody with a sales title says something, and then the CEO says the exact same thing, chances are they're going to move on what the CEO says versus what the seller says. So being really intimately involved in sales from the get-go is probably the most important thing. And that sort of never ends, right? I would imagine that the attentive CEO is still closing big deals. No, he loves it, right? And I probably should edit this out later. But yeah, I mean, he'll come in and tell you how he's the best seller of all time. And you're like, "Ah, I mean, (laughs) just come in and drop price a bunch and you can promise products that we don't have yet, uh, which makes it a lot easier yeah yeah i'm kind of piggybacking on the
0: sales team and then the ceos because a lot of we have the ceos and founders on this call we've also got some sales leads they're all going to be thinking about okay i've got product market fit i've got one salesperson or two salespeople. it's working well we're at a million in revenue i'm still closing some business and then they're thinking man how am i going to go from two to six million of arr this year The answer is obviously it's going to require humans, right? Even if there is some PLG or or kind of viral slant to it or inbound slant, it still is required. I'd love for you to just just to share a little bit how you think about the risk that the founders are taking, because I think that sometimes it gets misconstrued as higher risk than it necessarily is,
1: right? Yeah. I mean, I think the bigger risk is not scaling and running as fast as you can. If you have some semblance of product market fit, if you're sitting here with a million 2 million, 5 million in ARR, you've got something and you need to put fuel on that. Basically, what I want to raise on 2 million or 10 million next year, and I, I think I'd rather raise on 10, right? So, how do I get there? And how do I set that goal? How do I back out of that and build the capacity to help support hitting a number? And really, the risk is not building that capacity because if you don't build it, you will not get there. And so, spending a little bit of capital upfront in order to build the capacity and start running there you're going to know really quickly if things are working or not. And one of the things with sales is it's a very kind of numbers, clear, OKR-driven type thing. And so if somebody isn't pacing or isn't doing the things that you would expect, you can let them go. And I would say that fast is what people often say. Give people a shot. Make sure that you're not letting them down as a business. But this is early stage and you're still figuring things out. And so I would just take control of your own destiny I would hire SDRs and build that machinery of cold outreach and getting your own meetings. I would not rely on partnerships and marketing and all those things that are going to take a lot of time to build. I would spend the money on humans who know your business inside and out and are passionate about it and are doing cold outreach and getting those meetings. Revenue is going to win all your conversations. I had a board meeting once, one of my first ones, actually it was back in the day, it was Brad Feld was on the board and I remember it was, uh, it was my first it was actually my first board meeting. And I came in and just talked about like, hey, what are things that are going well? And what are challenges and blah, blah, blah. And he immediately went in on these challenges and was, well, this challenge, this was tearing me apart a little bit. And then I clicked to the next slide and we'd gone from zero to 100,000 in a- MRR. And he was like, what, Ooh, why, the, why the fuck didn't you lead with this one? And I was like, <laughs> what? And he's like, you're doing great. He's like, none of that other shit matters, right? And it was, it was one of those where it was like, hey, when we're, we're able to grow that top line number, it sort of wins all conversations and, and ultimately helps us do all the things that we want and helps us control our destiny. So yeah, was that the right answer? Yeah, was that no, that's
0: right? great. Right. And and I want to come back to the concept of even a capacity model at this point in time for a lot of these companies, which is they're obviously early stage. But before we get to that, I think some of these performance indicators would be really helpful for SDR specifically, because this may be the first time founders have hired SDRs. So yep. what are the traits that you were within the first few days, even were like, Hey, this isn't going to work out or this has the potential
1: to work. I would actually start before hiring them. Right. Yeah. I, the interview process is critical. And I'm going to, I'm going to lump AEs and SDRs together for a little bit, even like very different roles in, yeah. in my mind. But I think that sellers, even good junior sellers for SDR roles are very good at selling themselves. And I think that founders get duped Often early stage folks get duped often by really good sellers. Make sure in your hiring process that you are coming up with ways to cut through the bullshit. And I think for an SDR, it's making sure that they do a writing sample test, having them do a mock cold call, right? Where you actually pick up the phone and they have to get you to kind of convert to a meeting or something and don't ever convert to the meeting keep saying no, right? Really challenge them, see how they operate under pressure. Same thing for reps, I would say that any salesperson, sales leader, anyone in the sales org has to do a pitch of your product to you. You want to see how they think. You want to see the slides that they come up with. They might even come up with better things than you thought of, right? During that process, you might learn something. But also you need to know that they can stand and deliver. I've had so many people be amazing through five, six, seven interviews, and then show up and just shit the bed on a pitch. And it could be that they just didn't even try hard. That tells you a lot. But they also just might do a a terrible job, right? Or their nerves might take over and you're avoiding all of the issues kind of of those early indicators. Once you hire them, that would make you go, no, this isn't going well, or yes, this is is an amazing person. So you can cut through a lot of that early Mm -hmm. on the SDR front. If you're hiring a first one, try to find somebody who's worked at another startup that's done some of it. That way they know some of the technologies that are useful Right, what kind of tech stack is going to help them be more efficient and convert more meetings? I think they know how hard the job is. It's the hardest job. it it is for sure. It's really challenging. I've done it. (laughs) Yeah, I have too. I mean, it is the worst. But it's also when when you the best if you're performing. What's that? The best if you're performing. It is, but in I mean, it's just challenging always. Just but in retrospect, it's the thing that gave you a lot of the capabilities that you have once you're a seller and then i would actually i would go junior i'd go fresh out of college second job because that becomes the lifeblood of your organization it sounds crazy but those are the people that are going to go to happy hour after work they're the ones who are going to bleed the color of your company right never outsource an SDR team build it in house those are also going to be your funnel in the future once you're scaling to you know, attentive we're at 300 ae or 300 sales folks majority of them 90% plus have graduated through the SDR program now and are enterprise and even strategic sellers here. And so build that culture. But I would go very junior, people that are hungry, impressionable, and willing to put in the work. Yeah. And
0: so the indicators, sort of those first few weeks they get in there, where are you getting concerned and where are you, okay, this person's going to be a rock star
1: and probably will be around here in six months. <laughs> yeah, activity, 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 right? How many emails are they sending? How many of those are personalized? We measure yeah. outreach by generic, personalized, cold calls. Cold calling is not dead. They hate doing it, but the ones who do it get the most meetings, like track the phone calls. They do the, Yeah, that's the most effective approach right now. Without getting- question. It cuts through all the noise. And who's getting creative? We implemented something at Attentive that I think has been pretty game-changing. We average about, and we, ha- we have for like three years, about 185 initial prospect meetings a week. And we actually incentivize meetings. So if somebody wants to get on the phone with us, we used to do AirPods. Now we do $250 Amazon gift card. But nice. the conversion to meeting is so high that it's totally worth that spend. We used to have a quota for all SDRs. They had to spend $2,000 a week each on gifts. Oh, really? Yeah. People money. Okay. Hey, we, we, if you hop on the phone with us, we'll give you 250 bucks for your favorite restaurant. Yeah. I mean, but we were converting these folks at a rate of 55%, yeah. right? So it was like, if we could just get them on the phone, we From were... called to close 55%. to free trial, which was a 30-day free trial, but that converted 92% to long-term deal. So anyway, that's tangential here. I would definitely say if you can offer a free trial, and if you can incentivize that first meeting and you believe in your product that it's going to perform, those are two things that will absolutely help accelerate growth. But yeah, it really comes down to activity, right? How hungry are they? And you'll know right away if they're not cranking out 1,000, 1,500 emails, whatever the metric is that you're setting, because ultimately it's the activity that gets the meeting.
0: Yeah. There should always be almost, not necessarily a conflict, but this push and pull between marketing and sales and a sales team potentially saying, hey, I'm not getting enough leads or the marketing team saying, hey, the salespeople aren't closing our leads. But in some ways... You almost feel the sales team should be almost entirely independent of the concerns of the marketing team. As you're saying, generating your own leads. Uh, I think there's a bias towards this inbound approach in the market right now. But even the best inbound companies have great sales organizations and even outbound or people that have to curate the leads. How do you think about that? Because obviously, Bluecore looks like a hardcore enterprise, ultimately, and then Attentive's got both self-serve and big enterprise deals. But how do you think about getting over that mental hump of like, look, we just need to we need to make phone
1: calls, ultimately? Yeah, control your own destiny, right? Marketing, you're putting creative things out into the universe and building this community. I, the, the companies that have done that exceptionally well are rarefied air, right? I think a PubSpot comes to mind, yeah. right? And even they had a badass SDR and sales team, to your point. And so I think that, especially in the early days, the ability to build that inbound engine, again, whether it's from marketing or partnerships or or whatever it may be, I have never had the luxury of that, quite honestly. Attentive has done a little bit of it pretty well down market, um, but certainly up market, you have to contact these people. You have to talk about their business to them in a way that shows that you get it and that it's worth them getting on the phone with you, right? They're not like seeing something on Twitter and converting to a meeting. It's just not the way it works. And so, I would say especially from 0 to 40 million even, you are controlling your destiny by generating meetings at the top of the funnel through cold outreach from individuals on your team and then ultimately converting those to yeah. paying customers. Yeah. Um, it's the only it's the only like tried and true path that I've seen work time and time again. I've seen plenty of companies and I've been a part of them where we were like, let's spend all this money on marketing and let's do all these videos and let's do this, that and the other. And it didn't pack the same punch.
0: Yeah. So on that, with regard to packing the same punch, a lot of our teams or companies were started during COVID. And so maybe they were remote from the start. Some stayed in person, but maybe they've had a hard time hiring people. And so there's remote teams. Maybe it's changed over time. But what is your thought around in-person versus remote? And and maybe it's already remote, so we got to deal with it. How do
1: you handle that or think about that? This is a conversation that comes up a lot. We're struggling with this right now too, right? I mean, I think there was something recently where I'm sure somebody from Sequoia or something said, oh, like you need to bring people back into the office. Well, we've spent two years. We scaled from 200 people in two and a half years from 200 people to 2,000. Mm -hmm. The first 500 were mostly in New York City. The remainder were hired into a remote first company. And now we're sort of saying, hey, we want portions of the company to come back in the office. And and I think we're seeing it with Amazon as well. The toothpaste Mm -hmm. is out of the tube on that. That is really challenging. I think that people have really adapted to working this way. And especially for sales, like I would hire talent over location any day of the week. Maybe junior folks, you want to be able to create that environment for them if they want it, but you also should consider it being flexible, especially if you're tracking their metrics properly. But I just think that Zoom now is a way that we can make meaningful connections and relationships and can convert people. And this is a flippant joke, but I wrote you a check having never met you in person, right? Like right. we're, oh, we became mm-hmm. friends through yeah, Zoom. Yeah. And I think that teams can collaborate well. Uh, mm-hmm. And teams can achieve great things. I mean, again, we've grown from, I think I joined around 35 million here to you know, 400 million. I don't think I met my CRO in person for the first 18 months that I was here. That makes sense. Maybe potentially for the younger
0: SDRs, but at the same time, tracking the custom emails, tracking the phone calls, you'll get a pretty good sense of whether or not these folks are going to be able to stick with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I meet with the SDR, VP and the first line managers for each of my teams, mm-hmm. Uh, for my AE teams. Mm-hmm. So enterprise, strat, email, new verticals, all these things. And we go through every single week, how people are pacing, how many calls have they made. And we, we literally just go in and it's like, okay, these, these ones, we need to put on a coaching plan immediately. And it's being done quickly. And we make calls quickly. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the early days. I want to come now back towards
0: capacity and compensation. And I know you got yeah. some models on that. And maybe you, it starts with capacity and goes to compensation. But the big thing I, I also want to make sure we hit on is what that ROI should look like for uh, an individual within the organization. Because ultimately, I think some of the highest paid people at Attentive, or maybe all of them are the salespeople. And so I want to make sure that that comes across too. So maybe we, I'll let you sort of take the lead on that topic, and you can bring up whatever makes sense.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, from a quota multiplier standpoint, just in general, typically... and sorry, you, you called it a, a ROI but I would typically call it just a quota multiplier. So based on their quota, how much we are going to pay? It's typically you want like a five to eight X on something like that. I pulled some docs. I think I told you this. I went back and looked at like early, early blue core days, like 2013, 2014, when we were doing a million in ARR and kind of making stuff up. Yeah. And, And that's challenging. Like you're trying to grasp at numbers that don't even really exist. You don't really know what your conversion rate is. You don't know what quota somebody can realistically achieve. But you have to be able to like set goals and run towards those. If you don't, you won't hit anything. And if you do, you may miss. That's okay. You're still pacing towards something and you're getting a lot of learnings out of that. So anyway, I was gonna pull up a few documents. Yeah. Show you guys. All I do is I work backwards from a number that I want to hit. So let's just say that I need, and I call this inside sales, but this is SDR, MDR, whatever term you're using. If I need seven. Or 8 million, right? I need to figure out how many SDRs I'm gonna hire, how many meetings they're gonna get per month, per quarter. And then ultimately, what kind of conversion rate am I gonna get on those meetings to help me hit my eight million dollars? And so you wanna be conservative. I think what I use here for a conversion. Yeah, I mean it's like a 10% conversion rate on that. So initial prospect meeting to paying customer. And again, use your numbers, right? I think I have a little key down here that I use this is for the AEs, not for the SDRs, but IPM set per month, conversion rate. Like a, a, IPM a, would be just initial product meeting. Or, uh, initial prospect meeting. Yeah, prospect sorry. meeting. Okay.
0: yeah, I think for some people, like, they're going to be like, wow, that's low. But Super I know it's also high in some ways, but for probably a new person, but 10, that's
1: good for you, right? If they do that. Yeah, I mean, again, this is really this a long time ago. I mean, I think yeah. when we were doing SAS. Email platform, we were doing about 22%. That was considered pretty best in class at the time. I think that SMS and kind of the conversion rates I was mentioning before, the new channel, greenfield, like different environments. This is selling into a pretty saturated market that required, it was just hard. It was hard to, to rip and replace in this particular market. The bottom line is that we worked backwards again. Hey, I need to get to 8 million. How do I get there by the end of the year? How many AEs do I need? What is their quota performance? So if I'm going to assume that each one is going to get... And go back to the quota multiplier. Mm-hmm. If I have somebody who's making 200000 I want a 6X multiplier at a minimum. And so I, I need $1.2 million from them for it to make sense. And so from there, you build out. And I would highly encourage in the early days, move to monthly planning as quickly as you can on the sales side. It just produces a different level of rigor. I think in the future, when you're working with big, big numbers, and you're looking to go public, move to quarterly. Hmm. But in the zero to 100 range in ARR, I would do monthly as fast as I could. And make sure you're focusing on that. I mean, if you have a rep who's not performing in a month, how are they going to make that back, right? And then you start building in when you're going to hire, what does ramp look like there? And again, this is extremely basic. But at the time, I was 29 or whatever, I was trying to like, figure out what the hell was going on. All I knew was that we had a million dollars and we are 2 million and we needed to get to a bigger number. I think at the time we planned to get to like 7, we ended up doing 10 million that year. And all I did was hire to this plan and and actually overhire a little bit. I did a two to one ratio. This is another random tidbit here. In the early days, I did a two to one ratio SDR to AE. Again, control your destiny, get the meetings, have the at-bats. They're cheap, And so you bring in two to support one AE. Once that AE is at like a capacity and really is bandwidth constrained, you hire a second rep and then you go out and hire two more SDRs. And I would actually do that until I got to six SDRs and three AEs. And then I would hire to parity, a one-to-one ratio, six to six. And then from then on, I would do a one-to-one ratio. But again, in the early days, just it's all about the at-bats for you guys.
0: And you're having them as teams or, or literally like anyone, you're just filling the calendars
1: across the AEs based off of what the SDRs drive, or is it one-to-one, like literally partners? Literally partners for Stratton Enterprise, I think. I will say down market, if you're focused more on mid-market SMB, pooling works a lot better there. And so round robinning out of there, there's a great technology, Chili Piper, if nobody's using yeah. it, who's going down market, leverage it. It's fantastic for round robinning, things like that.
0: This is in the weeds, Gavin, but you've got this five people and you've got the SDR and you realize like they're just not booking the meetings. Like, how are you able to motivate somebody maybe that's capable to just make the extra phone calls? Like, obviously, like
1: the stick probably isn't effective. How do you make that happen? I've been enlightened on this in the last couple of years. Create a culture of coaching. I think that what happens is, and I mentioned this before, if somebody isn't doing well in a quarter, we immediately put them on a coaching plan. That is not a PIP. A coaching plan is an opportunity to like help them be better. And they accept that as like, hey, we have a culture of coaching and trying to make people better. Now, if they don't respond to that coaching plan in the way that you would expect them to, like, yeah, I'm probably going to put them on a PIP or probably just going to let them go, mm-hmm. by the way. Coaching plans, PIP, all the stuff that is big company BS. Yeah, but if in the early days, if you do coaching plans with somebody who isn't doing very well, do it for thirty days. If they don't turn it around, let them go. Yeah, you don't have the capital in the bank to support a longer process than that. But I also wouldn't. If you have like one that messes up, I wouldn't give up on SDR. SDR is a very proven role that has has succeeded time and time again. Right.
0: And then compensation, I think one thing that probably doesn't come across here is how you think about the compensation because there's obviously the SDR and the AE. So it's like, how do you think about that as a combined group? And also, what is the correct level of compensation, especially for an early stage company to be paying these people because that fixed cost of the salary can add up if you have five of them?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd almost encourage, I mean, I just reach out to me. They're all going to be very different on the comp. I can give you some high level stuff here and I will. I think SDR is a little more straightforward. And I did pull up an old SDR one from back in the day just for fun. But on the AE front, you want to make sure that you're incentivizing the right actions and that you're driving them to close as much business as they possibly can for the business. It's going to depend on who you're going after and what your ACV is. And there's a whole bunch of factors in there. In the early days, you're going to incentivize folks with equity and maybe lower comp if they're willing to buy into that. And again, that's one of those where like, if they are willing to buy into a scenario like that, those are the right kind of people to get on board. Like they get it, but it's going to be very case by case for each company. But generally speaking, these people are going to be making hundred K base with a hundred K variable. And that's for like the most junior sellers. That's Um, where you use That's for AEs. Yeah. Our SDRs are probably at like a 75, 75, just on average or 65, 65. But again, to your point about the highest paid people, like I wish I was an AE here. I think I had seven people on my team last year, make over seven figures, Yeah, which people are probably like, oh shit, that's a lot of money for somebody. But they were also driving $4.8 million a year in top line revenue. Right. Yeah. Just huge amounts of revenue. Yeah. And so it was totally worth it for us, each individual. So sorry, let me put that different way. They were all quoted. All all of them, all 60 of them are quoted at like 4.8 million. The ones who are making a million are booking six to $8 million. Like it's good business for us to pay them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it gets so basic, right? Give them a base salary, whatever your ICP is, you pay them per meeting. Mm -hmm. I actually really like this. A lot of companies don't love this, but like, go ahead and give them like just 1% of a deal tie them to the success of the deals, right? So they're not getting meetings with crappy people. They might get them to go after the economic buyer or whatever it may be. And so uh, there are a bunch of different ways to do this, but this is the most basic possible way that I've come up with. And then you start estimating like their meetings per month, bonus per month, and then look at those closed deals. And then it, it works out to kind of their base salary, or sorry, their OT being $89,000, which these are- That's 20, pretty great numbers. for a 23 year old. Yeah, it is. These are also twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen numbers. So yeah. they've, they've gone up a little bit. I do like the
0: monthly bonusing, especially for the younger people. Like I remember at the startup I worked at when I was 23, like that feeling of every month, because I didn't obviously make a lot of money salary because it was a startup, but feeling like, okay, like I can make an impact on my own on how much cash I have by doing a good job
1: just this week. Totally. Yeah. And and have fun. I mean, this is a group that you should have fun with, right? Yeah. Do spiffs. We had a cultural principle here called use sugar. And that meant like use it internally to get people excited, but also use it with prospects. And especially when all of you on this call are going to go from 5 million to 20 million this year, next year, you're going to raise some fat series B when you have big meetings, send somebody a bottle of Dom Perignon, like just Mm -hmm. like there's, there's ways to leave sort of indelible marks with people. Yeah. The other one I'll show you just for fun, this is something I used to do back in the day. I still should actually, but we do it in different ways now. But basically like lay out your process, lay out your probability, Mm -hmm. like do all this stuff now. Like you may not know all of it, but like put it down on paper and start working towards those things. Eventually, especially as you guys continue to grow, like forecasting is my whole life now. It's boring as hell, but it's my life. But Hey, you know, involved at each stage, What are the activities that we're doing? What are we looking for, like for in terms of the verifiable outcome to move it forward? Mm -hmm. Some of you might be like, we are so not ready for something like this. The people that are saying that, you're not going to be as successful. All Mm -hmm. this stuff should be being put down on paper and talked about and thought about Mm -hmm. because it's ultimately going to optimize your conversion funnel. And then this one was interesting too. I think you were asking me just about metrics and stuff. They get more complex over time. Mm-hmm. But I would also encourage people early, early on to like set up definitions of what you expect. I mean, this seems so basic, but you should just do it. This is for AEs. What does professional communication look like? What does professional conduct look like? What does integrity look like at our company? And this allows you to performance manage them. This also allows mm-hmm. you to, in the early days, say, hey, you're not doing this. Like you're, you, you just don't fit. This isn't working out. And these are not metrics driven. These are like feeling driven. But you set the expectation with them so that you can make a move if you need to. These are metrics. Some of the metrics that I track for AEs: signups, let's gross new bookings, sales efficiency. We have two different versions based on a closed date and then a time box created in closed date. And then even for AEs, I look at like how many emails are they sending. It's amazing. Like if you don't track something like that, you'll go in and look at their sent emails and be like, <sighs> what the hell, you haven't sent any emails. Like what's going on here? How many deals are moving forward from discovery to like later stages, meetings held, account hygiene, this is like MedPick and things like that. So anyway. What is MedPick? It's a framework. It's actually a deal qualification framework more than a methodology. I think people confuse that a little bit, but it's, I would say of the last, I'm just going to guess, but of the last 20 SaaS companies to go public, probably 18 of them leveraged MedPick. The framework allows you to say, like, have you gotten the metrics from the customer? Who's the economic buyer? It's the paper process. It's an acronym. Each one has its own kind of set of criteria. And so what that allows you to do is go in and see if there are gaps in the deal, right? Like you may have a champion, but you don't have an economic buyer. We're not going to forecast this deal. And at an early stage, doing a, a lighter version of that is super helpful. For early stage companies, I always build my own methodology, Come up with your own, take like pieces of, uh, there's so many out there, but don't take something off the shelf. Like you're unique, build something for yourself. Eventually you're going to have to take something off the shelf at scale, but like in the early days, really define like what is the method by which we're going to close these deals and what's our approach, even at a philosophical level, like how do you sort of operate and how do you expect people to operate? Yeah, for sure. Okay great so i think we have about 5 more minutes so
0: there's two questions i want to make sure we answer and people can pop in more if we have time so the first one is what do you see as main considerations on the sales side for product led growth companies the same question could be around things that have a lot of expansion and
1: usage based pricing yep. too yeah absolutely i love product led growth if it can be achieved like if you have a product that allows for that We're lucky enough for that yeah exactly regardless of product-led growth or sales-led growth, the sooner you can get to a scaling pricing model, like based on usage, as you just said, the better. I've definitely made the mistake where you like build a product, you say, this is the product, here's how much it's gonna cost per month. And let's say it's $10,000, right? And it just stays 10,000. Then you go to renew and it's like, oh, we're gonna increase it three to 5%. And like the, it's so hard to get like that net dollar retention number up unless you go and build a new product and then go in and upsell that product. And so if there's a way for you to build scaling pricing that allows you to treat all those sort of net new products almost as features, but -hmm. that just drive up that engagement, whether it be like growing a list and sending more messages, Mm -hmm. which is what we do here, the sooner that you can move to that, the better. Yeah. I don't know if that, hopefully that answered their question. Yeah. That's a great answer.
0: And then lastly, what is the role of, of the CRO in your mind? Is there an end-to-end view from lead generation all the way through customer retention, or should it be a more siloed approach, marketing, sales, customer success? Obviously, it's yes. on stage, but let's just say 5 to $20 million software
1: companies. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those roles that just is not defined well and is used too often. I'm going to probably say something that'll piss some people off on this call, but if any of you have a CRO right now, you should not. That's a vanity title that you gave to give somebody on the team. I think that especially as you go to grow, it also makes it really hard to like hire above that person. Like things will change. So ultimately you're gonna have to fire that person as opposed yeah. to retain them. So I would really start the yeah, five million. It's still ahead of sales in my mind. Maybe some mm-hmm. VPs, depending on the size of the team. I've had opportunities to take a CRO title and I've turned them down. I I am not a CRO quite yet. I don't actually have the finance acumen. I think that a chief revenue officer is equal parts sales and CFO. And it's something that I'm working very hard on right now because I would love to have that role. But I also don't want to take a role that I don't think is the right title. And so as it pertains to what they oversee, I also think that a CRO... Like somebody who only manages the sales org is never a CRO. A CRO owns sales and CS in my mind, most cases. I think marketing usually sits separate. There's a CMO that rolls up to the CEO. There are companies that that have done that in different ways. But I think by and large, it's pre-sales, sales, implementation, customer success, renewal, whether that be customer success renewal or account sales account manager. renewal, That's a CRO's universe.
0: Perfect, obviously, a lot of these folks like their customer success is also doing the upsell to an extent
1: at this point, yeah, and I, hey, if that works, that is awesome, but that can also I would say test pressure probably test. Not the most. you pick your top customers yeah. and throw a sales account manager, somebody with a lot like say there's somebody who's paying five hundred thousand that you think that could should be paying two million with you, yeah, put somebody who's a sales talent on that and see if they can really drive that,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's great. There's one more question, actually. What is your go-to tech stack? So what are you guys using at Attentive?
1: What's been effective? Yeah, I mean, outreach for cold outreach, Zoom info for all like the information that's going into Salesforce. We do use Salesforce. I just use Salesforce. You have to. You guys don't, I think, need this probably yet, but as soon as you are kind of at your next level of scale, Clary is out of this world. I use it for all of my forecasting and planning gong we use gong extensively mm-hmm. i think gong's kind of bleeding into clary's space a little bit so there may be an opportunity to use gong in the same in a similar fashion for you guys what else we use lattice for one on ones we use i mean I, I, what's kind of interesting too about that question is that ai is going to disrupt all of this and mm-hmm. so i will be taking a really hard look at our tech stack moving right. forward and likely leveraging systems that are using a lot more AI than the ones that we're currently using, or if they're going to build it, that's fantastic. But there are things that should be automated within the approach that we're taking.
0: All right. I think we have come to the end of the session. Gavin, this was awesome.
1: I get a lot of energy working with early stage companies. A lot of my work now is process repeatability, analytics, methodology, and not as fun as what you guys are doing.
0: Thank you, Gavin. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining in on this conversation. We hope you enjoyed the discussion between Gavin and Brendan and that you'll join us on the next one. See you next time.